This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Hello everyone, welcome to another installment of Darkness Weaves, a collaboration between Everything Went Black and Soul Knox, Carl Hikara's podcast. Anyone who's been following this uh, sub-series understands that it is our attempt at covering the work of Carl Edward Wagner, a conspicuously obscure author of fantasy, horror, and weird fiction. And uh, we just think everyone should know about him. He's um, an incredible writer. And uh, most of his work is actually out of print, with the exception of In a Lonely Place, which the wonderful Valancourt books have put back in print. And phase one of this project was our coverage of that volume of incredible weird fiction and horror stories. Our next mission is to cover the stories of his character, Kane a sword and sorcery character who is more of a villain slash anti-hero and is not very heroic, very self-serving in a lot of ways. And Carl and I are going to be delving into the numerous short stories and novels that Wagner wrote about this fascinating character. So today's episode, this week's episode, is the short story Two Suns Setting. And uh, we're going to read an excerpt from the story which really sets the tone for this tale. But before we do that, I want to shout out the other members of the Horsemen of the Podcasting Apocalypse. Kicking the week off on Mondays, every other Monday, we have Brandon Legion bringing us Horror Wolf 666. Next up, Jackie Smith's Into the Necrosphere, the premier metal podcast on the internet. Wednesday, of course, is Everything Went Black. Thursday is Necro Thursday. I return with Mike Scandato and Jeff Cashy to bring you our analysis of new and old horror films. Friday, Mike's brother, John Draper, deploys Spitball Media, which has uh, actually been done, doing a lot, of, a lot of discussion of horror films as well, but uh, sort of a general cultural uh, commentary podcast and uh, highly recommended by all of us. Saturday is a day off. Sunday Carl brings us Soul Knox for all things dark, esoteric, and macabre. And our newest member of the Horsemen, Cheyenne of the great band Trivax, brings us Iblis Manifestations. Those are deployed as needed. So uh, they kind of drop in at just the right time. If you like the show, I urge all of you to follow us on social media. Instagram, if you want to get at me, the best bet is to hit me on Instagram. 
I don't really uh, delve too much into social media these days. It's been a deliberate attempt of mine to live in the real world. But if you want to contact me, hit me up through Instagram, uh, mostly on my personal one, the the Michael DC Hill Instagram, um, or on Everything Went Black. That's probably the best ways to get in touch with me. If you want to support the show further, you can join the Patreon. And that has several tiers, a $1 tier, a $5 tier, and a sponsor $25 tier. And you can join for as long as you want, one month, or for all eternity. But you get bonus material, early access to episodes, and uh, that sort of thing. Sullen red disc, the sun was burying itself beneath a monotonous horizon of rolling gravel waste that stretched behind him miles uncounted and possibly untrod save for his horse's hooves long before the sunlight failed its warmth was snuffed out in the empty lifelessness of the desert so that in its last hour the sun shone cheerless as the rising moon crimson as it climbed the full moon seemed a false dawn to mock the dying sun arriving prematurely disrespectful as a greedy heir pacing in eager impatience before the master's deathbed. For a space, the limitless skies of the twilight display two rubrous globes low on either horizon, so that Cain mused as to whether his long journey across the desert might not have led him to some strange dusk world where two ancient suns smoldered in the heavens. The region seemed unearthly in its chill desolation, and certainly an aura of unguessable antiquity hung as a gray shadow over each tumbled bit of stone. So we're deep into the work of Carl Edward Wagner's heroic fantasy character, Kane. This is our second story in this uh, phase of Darkness Weaves. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro... The, the story that the story that we're going to be covering is Two Suns Setting, and uh, it's in that volume uh, that's out there on Kindle with the awful covers. But uh, Carl and I are working yeah. through this thing, and uh, hopefully, somebody makes a proper uh, republishing of uh, the Nightwinds collection, and uh, we get like a nice hard hard volume, like hard copy of this stuff to enjoy someday soon. Yeah, it would be cool if, uh, you know, Valancourt did a version of my lens or something. You know, that would be pretty cool. But somebody, yeah. Yeah. Like, anybody. It's like anybody put out a new new edition. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the more I, um, like, I, I've read these short stories a few times. You know, first yeah. I got into the character when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, I just read it at face value. Um at that time, I hadn't really been exposed to like a lot of other literature, and I just read it as like awesome adventure stories, you know, with sorcery and sword fights and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, but later on in life, as you get more experience with other types of literature and you have a life experience and things like that, um, you start to really appreciate the layers to the character of Kane, you know, and what a complex sort of character he is, you know. And uh, I remember, um you know, in various readings, different blogs and whatever they refer and, and probably like annoyingly. So they refer to the Kane stories as thinking man, sword and sorcery. 
Right. But I think that they kind of are in a way, you know, but, but that's kind of a little bit though. Um, I don't, I think that, that, that Robert E. Howard stuff was thinking man's sword sorcery, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that's kind of downplaying that the, the genre itself, you know, obviously you got like kind of like stuff that's just, um, you know, whatever, you know, not very, you know, just standard, standard sword and sorcery. But if you go back to the roots of the genre of like Robert E. Howard stuff, I mean, it's already thinking man's stuff. There's a lot of, you know, meditations on philosophy and, and like the nature of humanity and stuff that we see in Cain as well, which we'll get into if this, this, this story really gets into a lot of that same type of like, kind of in a way pessimistic philosophies that that you'd see even on like howard stuff you know what i mean yeah, yeah i mean i was responding to that in the same way that people refer to like elevated horror you know it's like annoying when people refer to horror films as elevated horror meaning that there's like more to it you know than than just like slashers and whatnot but I, if you're going to say thinking man sword and sorcery i would definitely include robert e howard i would include michael moorcock's work you know elric and quorum and like all that sort of stuff I would throw in uh, Fritz yeah. Leiber, you know, Fritz Leiber's stories, like all that sort of stuff. Now, all of it is like thinking man, sword and sorcery. And there's a lot of heavy like topics and philosophies being described in all that work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, I think that, that that's one of those things of kind of, um, it's like that kind of like, where you kind of like, trying to like make something like better than other things when it's like kind of ignoring the fact that the things you're trying to like kind of I don't know elevate it from are already that way you know so it's like like this whole like elevated horror thing is stupid because it's like kind of saying that horror is like just trash and this is like real real art or something when you already have plenty of horror movies and since since the 30s that you know, since the beginning of horror, that all quote unquote elevated. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. So, I feel um, like the, the same way with this. At the beginning of Tucson's setting, we find Kane. Uh, he had just fled Carsultiel, um, the the city that he was living in in uh, last uh, last episode that we covered in um, Undertow. Um, so he yeah. quit that city. You know, you got you got the sense that he just kind of grabbed all of his gear, jumped on a horse, and lit out of town, most likely in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. <laughs> across, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's funny. Well, it's funny too because it says like he could have taken on the on the sorcerers who kind of like united against him, but he's like, nah, I'm, I'm tired of this place anyway, so why fight? You know. <laughs> You know, and he lost his, uh, you know, his love, and um, you know, all he wanted was like a girlfriend forever. <laughs> so now he's, uh, he's like the hell with it. I'm just gonna have adventures. I'm gonna go into the desert and just find out what's going on. And the rest of the, you know, gonna quit this city. And uh, it kind of starts out like it almost reminds me of like like a Sergio Leone sort of, uh, you know high plains drifter western kind of setting you know what i mean the way they describe the landscape and he's on a horse and he's crossing some desolate you know desert and um 
what kind of sets the tone yeah. is is uh the rising of the moon and the setting of the sun and uh in that intro that i read which i thought was a very powerful way to start the story and it kind of gives you a little foreshadowing to what's actually going on is that it's almost like he views it as almost like there's two suns in the sky you know one is exiting the world and one is entering the world and uh it yeah. just sets up this like really, really nice brooding like atmosphere yeah because that's kind of central to the themes of, of the story is that kind of idea of of time and and um you know one one thing dying and another thing rising and you know like um i do agree with you it definitely has like a, a a spaghetti western or a western type of feeling with like the setting and him riding across this desert and you know the kind of lone rider you know like it definitely ties into those types of those types of images which probably is is purposeful i would imagine you know so one of the things that's interesting is uh you know he's running out of food and water okay so question i have kane's immortal and he can't be killed so what would happen if you actually starved? what do you think I think you just keep going, but I think it wouldn't be very pleasant for him. <laughs> yeah, just like, it, would, it would be like a diminished version of himself, like, you know, like this kind of uh, emaciated body, like pulling itself across the terrain. Do you think that would be his fate? Like he wouldn't actually die? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because it's kind of put that, that he needs food, or he's hungry for food and want and stuff. So, you know, it, I, would, I, would, I would assume that if he couldn't eat or whatever, he would just like live on as like, some, you know, become some type of desiccated race or something. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. I don't I know. Thinking, That's I just my, my idea of it. Yeah. Yeah. So as he's traveling, um, he starts smelling, uh, cooking meat. And of course, you know, you're a starving man and, uh, you want to investigate, uh, what the source of this, uh, the smell is, you know, cause you're hopeful that, the person cooking this food might share this with you. You know what I mean? So, um, so this is where we find, uh, Dwaslier, the, the giant. And, um, yeah, he's camped out. He's got an encampment and, um, he's got this, uh, this beast that he felled and he's cooking it up. And, uh, and, you know, Kane rolls up on his horse and he's like, um, Hey, how's it going? Uh, you mind sharing some of that, uh, that meat you're cooking with me? <laughs> Yeah, and he finds out Kane like Dwaslier like knows who he is. He knows the mark of Kane, which I kind of think is his eyes. I think that I think that the mark of Kane in the story is his eyes. You know, like because because he, he references that in the first story as well. Yeah, but I don't know. But it might not might be on his forehead. But he always wears the 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 thing over his head. But you know what I mean. I get a feeling that sometimes it's like something about his eyes seems to be important, but yeah, you know, so knows who he is and Kane, um, and yeah, yeah, and they, they get down to like e eating basically. And then after they eat, they have like a long philosophical conversation, which is exactly what I was talking about. You know what I mean? Was it being very philosophical? 
Well, one of the things that's really cool about this story too is, um, you know, in, in this story, you get the sense of man being a relatively new inhabitant of this world and that there were other races and kingdoms that existed way before the arrival of man on this planet, you know, and, and they also make reference to Cain being like of the original men, like the first men, you know? Yeah. Which I even like make a, um, what was the, uh, where he talks about, um, trying to find the, uh, the mark, but it's probably what he's talking about that man, oh yeah, my, my race is older than yours, we had grown to maturity while a mad god is playing his idiot game of shaping mankind from the bestial filth that sculpt or shadow lay deepest <laughs> the good one, yeah, and and there's also yeah. like this very interesting um, you know, sort of dichotomy about what uh, entails a successful race you know, a successful race of people like Cain Cain is very much of that human um, expansionist sort of point of view where he talks yeah. about, you know, shaping the world in the image of man, you know, and and Dwasilir talks about living in harmony with the world and nature, you know, and he looks at that as more of like having less impact on the world. And Cain is like, you know, I'm, I'm going to you know create empires and kingdoms and you know, mold the world in my image. So there's two very different thought processes about their, you know, their, their different races and like what's successful and what's not. Yeah. Like it strikes me that with, with Blossier and the giants, like they lived in the, this kind of state of like primordial struggle, you know what I mean? Which became like elevated to their, that's their civilization. Like, it's not necessarily like um, they don't believe in like building monuments and doing all this stuff, but do do like basically their civilization is based around the idea of uh, overcoming adversity. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 they kind of see mankind as being kind of like this pitiful like creature that came and you know is is basically like usurping nature and usurping their place you know and uh even says like man has stolen his his civilization from the ruins of better races preceded him human civilization is a parasitic a gaudy fungus that owes its vitality to it the dead genius upon whose corpse it flourishes <laughs> yeah it's that's pretty heavy man that was that's a great quote yeah, yeah. and yeah and i think this story really I mean, even if you tie the, you know, the title of the story, that opening paragraph and this discussion between Dwaslier and Kane, it this is like really the meat of the story. I mean, there's like adventure and stuff like that. But the, the takeaway for me is just that conversation that they're having over the campfire about like the two different approaches to living. And, uh, you know, and Kane brings up the point that the giants are on their way out, you know, like. Okay, so much, so much for your idea of primordial struggle and living in harmony with the rest of the world. Like you're one of the last of your people, and here I am. You know, mankind is like overrun the entire face of the of the planet. You know, and we have these monuments and empires, and you know, and even though Cain has seen all these empires rise and fall too, because he's immortal, but he still sees man as like this, 
you know, it's going to, it's here to stay basically. Yeah. And like, you get, you get some other information where it seems like you start to get a kind of view into Kane as well, that, that in the world that, that this is like maybe earth, you know, very early there's, you get the sense that, um, that it's the rise of man, but then there's all these things before mankind, like you said, not just giants, but elder races, which I'm assuming is tying Cain into the Lovecraft mythos. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. So, so he's talking about, you know, I talk about these things and, and, you know, when, when Cain brings up these ideas, this, the fact that, Hey, I mean, like man's on the ascendant, your, your race kind of going down. Uh, Dwasker says like, I think our race has grown old and tired maybe we should have followed the giant beast of the savage past into the realm of shadow at least our old enemies gave life adventure it's as if my race has lived beyond its era and now we perish from boredom or like one of your kings has conquered all his enemies and now only has a dull old age to endure my race rose in a heroic age Cain. it was truly a day of giants in that era that age is dead. Gone are the great beasts. Vanished the elder races whose wars rocked the roots of mountains. Earth has been inherited by the insignificant scavenger. Man crawls around the ruins of the great age and proclaims himself to be Earth's new master. Perhaps man will survive to accomplish his insolent usurpation. More likely, he will destroy himself in seeking to command the mysteries the elder races found too awesome for even their powers to control. You know? Yeah, that, that's one of the things that these stories really, really capture is like this, the idea of deep time, you know, and even even today, like even in our society, we we think of mankind as like, you know, the, the history of our planet beginning with the history of mankind. But, you know, the, there's been thousands, you know, millennia prior to man's inhabit inhabitation of the planet that have existed. And uh, and the Cain stories really speak to that because of, um, you know, his his immortality. And then conversations with a with a, a past race of giants who talk about how man is just like these upstarts and there's these elder races that once were mighty and you know and ruled the planet. And uh that's one of the coolest things about these stories, really, is that that idea of deep time and infinity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's kind of it's it's something you get in, in Howard as well some at times. And it's yeah. also part of what was great about Tolkien as well, like, is when you, you know you read the Lord of the Rings and you have these type of moments where you, you kind of peek behind a veil at the immeasurable time that has passed, you know, like the the age of of epic heroes and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, it gives you that little bit of taste of that, how deep time of a time that's kind of beyond what mankind can even comprehend, you know? So this is when uh, Dwasilir talks about an ancient king and a tomb and a crown that he is uh inspired to find this crown so that he could bring it back to his people and once again restore them to a place of glory in the world you know so it's like this kind of romantic fanciful idea of a quest to um elevate the giants back into their what he believes to be their their place of significance in the world instead of falling into obscurity yeah, apparently the uh, the crown is somewhere in, in the mountain ranges nearby, you know, like, uh, and he also tells, talks about how 
Velan used to be like green and, and verdant until like something happened where where it became like this desert, you know, maybe because of the older races doing their their stuff. We, I don't remember if it says exactly why it became like a desert, but back when the giants lived in this area, it was like a a verdant land. And I think there's a, isn't there a part where Kane says something about how he doesn't recognize the land, but he had visited here when he was, when at some point in time. Right. So. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a recurring thing in, in a lot of the stories of Kane where he, you know, he's been around for, for, you know, he's an immortal. So he's been around since, you know, millennia basically. And that's one of the things where he, he that's a, a returning thing in this thing where he'll be in a city and he'll, like once again, like Carsutiel, he remembers that being just like a fishing village at some point, and now it's like this mighty city, you know, this like place of seat of power, you know. But he remembers it being nothing much than just a collection of huts and you know fishermen. Yeah, and I mean, you could imagine that. Let's see if he's been in. You know, he knows how to speak giant. He's been speaking the giant language to to Dwasir and everything. You get the sensation that, yeah, he probably spent time with them at some point, but now the landscape is so completely different than it was when he was there. They probably didn't recognize it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and also you get this sense. I mean, even even in, like, our short lifespans, you know, if you think back, like, 20 years ago or something, like, you could barely remember shit, you know? It's like, I try to, th- I try well, to yeah. think back to, like, high school or whatever, and it's like, did that actually happen? Did I, were these real people like this? Are these situations (laughs) something that I imagined or they really happened? So imagine Kane with his memory going back thousands of years and how some of these thoughts that he has when he goes to these places, he probably is like, did I even do this? You know, this is even like real. Is it, or just a, an imagination that I have, you know? Yeah. Well then also like, um, I think of, uh, uh, if you think about, like, I don't know how it is there, but here in Denver, like, there's places that I grew up with that I go to now that I don't even recognize. Like, if you don't go there for, like, I went to go, like, this one area for, like, you know, a few years. And I went there, and they had developed it so much to the point that I didn't know where I was. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so. So even in the space of a human life, something things can change so drastically that you can't even recognize it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So imagine what Cain has to deal with with his, you know, thousands of years of life that he's lived. Yeah, it's like how many, how you know, how long has he spent in Carsutiel? You know, like excited about the growing civilization and uncovering all these, you know, secrets of the elder races. So he's probably been there for you know, thousand years, two thousand years, something like that. You know what I mean? Who knows how long he spent there? Well, even it's never really determined, like even between Undertow and Tucson setting, like how much time has passed. They just talk about how he left the city. Like for all we know, there could have been a couple of hundred years have passed since that whole drama that went what happened with in in you know Undertow. He could have just stayed there for like another hundred years and decided to leave. Yeah, exactly. You know, we don't we don't, we don't really know these types of things. Like much like with the Conan stuff, it's a little bit vague you know what i mean you kind of just have to you know make your own assumptions about it but i i get a sensation he's been there for a long time but but i feel like the curse of cain which goes in the beginning is that he gets 
boredom. Boredom is the, the curse of Kane in a lot of ways, you know? I feel like that's the curse that he's been given, you know? Exactly. And loneliness, you know, and, and just, yeah. That Actually, what do you make of people's conjecture that Kane is the biblical Kane? What do you think of that? Yeah, I think so. I think that that you can kind of get that from that, that quote where he's like, this mad God who created mankind, you know, like, I definitely think that, that Cain is technically is supposed to be kind of the, the, the biblical Cain, because also when he's talking about kind of about And also uh, Cain, you know, the biblical Cain, who slew his brother Abel, you know, if you, if you want to follow that mythology, that Cain also starts out sort of uh, morally ambiguous. And uh, as we, in all of these Cain stories, we see that uh, that is very much a defining characteristic of Cain's uh, personality is his moral ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. And also Cain in legend became, you know, when he went east of Eden, he was actually a, a creator of civilization in a lot of the legends, like, which is part of why there was like, you know, he was the people the um, in the Judaic myth was like seen as Cain was the one who went and created like Samaria and like you know like the civilizations that rose up in Canaan and stuff like that. So him being kind of like a figure of civilization and and everything would be actually pretty appropriate for him for his you know his myth. You know what I mean? So uh, Dwaslir and Cain decide to go embark on this journey to find this crown. And, um, you know, so they set out on the desert. And uh, this is also uh, another sort of moment where we get to understand how the passage of time, there's there's this rock formation that uh, Cain observes. And he's like, not sure if it's a rock formation or some incredibly old structure that's been eroded by the wind and sands. And I thought that was yeah. a really, really cool point in the story. Yeah, I mean, cause that can be the, the case. Like, there's places that used to be, you know, fortifications or cities that people later on took to be just like a, a formation. And then later on, they found out that notice is like a city, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's very appropriate. <laughs> so they, um, they find the opening to a cave where you know they they've figured out that this is where the the, the tomb of the king is and uh of course Wassler being a giant he can't fit in there so he convinces Kane to go in there and uh, check it out and do some recon and yeah cuz cuz there there was like a rock fall or something so the caves like kind of potentially coming down you know what i mean like the rocks are coming down so there's just like a gap just big enough for Kane to go through maybe yeah and this is actually in this story we we kind of um determine how the, how big Kane is. He's uh over six feet tall and just over three hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah. They talk about three hundred pounds of bone, sinew, and muscle. <laughs> yeah, just like some jacked like guy that's three hundred pounds of muscle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny. So, um, I mean he's six feet tall. He's got I mean he's gonna be look almost look like a wrestler probably, right? <laughs> to be three hundred yeah, pounds and all muscle. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder if they had steroids back then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely actually, you know, Arnold would be kind of 
if Arnold would have had like red hair, he'd be a kind of cane body type, I guess. <laughs> I know that it's like definitely wishing beyond any kind of like re- rationality, but I so would love to see like a really well done like series, you know, especially these days chronicling all these stories, you know? Oh, yeah. It would be really cool, but I just worry that they like ruin it, you know? Yeah, that that's always that's always like the risk these days of making not not catching all the subtleties and all the you know the kind of like really cool literary parts of this. Yeah, exactly. Like either just making it like claptrap or or like watering it down. You know what I mean? Yeah, because as we as later is uh, is illustrated in this, Kane's not a good guy at all. Actually, <laughs> he's no, he's not. You know, he's, uh, <laughs> definitely. Um, in, in like Dungeons and Dragons, I would say that he's uh you know chaotic. Um, I would say at the very best, chaotic neutral. Yeah, yeah, he's. I'd say he's probably chaotic neutral, if not if not evil. Because I feel like I feel like he's um neutral in the sense that I don't think he's like doing things to be evil necessarily, but he's just like yeah, in D and D, it would be neutral where. You can go either way. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He is like 50-50, like in all these stories, you know? And it's like, you know, like for example, in Undertow, he's a, he's, he's the he's the bad guy. Like if you were to make like a horror story based on that, he would be the villain in that story, definitely. Oh, yeah. You know, he's like the he's like the Dracula kind of in that story. But, but then in this, he's a little bit more of the – the hero in a lot of ways or the adventure, you know what I mean? So it's a so it's kinda gives you you know a different viewpoint on on him and it's one one story where he's actually like the main character, you know? Yeah. So he's deep in this cave and this is where he does actually find they're they're right that this is where the, the king his tomb is and they observe he observes this like crown and this king and this is where we really get to see the true uh peril of being involved with Kane because he considers at one point either murdering Dwasilir and taking the crown for himself or exiting the cave and be like, Oh yeah, there was nothing in there. And then just come back on his own to steal it. <laughs> yeah. But, but he, he, he kind of foregoed that in his excitement where he, you know, his first thing was to tell Dwasilir, Oh yeah, it's here. And then he's like, damn it. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like, yeah. you know, and and once again, it's it's um, I'm I'm really fascinated by just like his amorality, you know, and how that connects. Number one, with like, if he is the original Cain from the biblical legends, how that Cain, you know, was was sort of a bad guy, and uh, and also just over the eons of being alive, how your point of view on morality probably gets eroded. You know, as time goes on and you develop this like deep cynicism and self-centeredness because that's all you have is yourself. Like everyone's growing old and dying and all these kingdoms are crumbling and you really get a sense that nothing is permanent except for you. So why follow any of these rules? And it's almost like this kind of like, you know, like uh, almost like a satanic sort of Luciferian, uh, you know, philosophy, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of a, a lawless, you know, he's kind of, he's trying to follow his own law in a lot of ways, you know, and he, 
and been, you know, I get that with Undertow that he's putting his own will into the, into, you know, he's trying to impinge his own will onto everybody and everything around him in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's like definitely like a big factor in all these stories too, is just like, you know, his, his, his own will and, you know, lawlessness and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, um, from this story, even though he thinks these things, he ends up doing, you know, basically kind of doing the right thing in a lot of ways, you know, and, he uh, he tells but Dwarf is so excited. It's like a, you know his lifelong dream. Like and Dwarf is pretty old himself. You know, like he can still remember back in the, the old days of the giants and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like he's he's been maybe not as old as Kane, but he's pretty old. And it's been his dream since he was you know his whole life. So he's like super excited and he starts trying to like. You know, pull out all the bricks, the, the the boulders, and get everything out of his way to get so he can get into the cave and see see Dwasilir's, uh body. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, and as part of that, all of a sudden the cave itself collapses. Kane gets away from it, but there's some. You know, there was like a fissure, like in the in the mountain, and when that that shifted, the fissure opened up even more. And that's yeah. when we get to see the, some of the under the denizens of the underworld that emerge. <laughs> yeah, and that's like the that's when things get interesting. Where there's this, um, you know, that this creatures that have been like locked away and have evolved to to live in the darkness, you know, and and um, you know, of course, whenever 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 a creature evolves in darkness, they always seem to be larger than than they would be, you know, like whenever whenever you you hear these read these stories, like. So like a rat is like gigantic and cockroaches are huge, you know, and and um Yeah. Like in know. this story, the rats are like cat size. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. And uh so and this is also one of my favorite uh tropes in these stories is the underground um creatures, you know, there's uh that's a big trope and uh a lot of different, you know, like uh you know, Arthur Mackin has a lot of uh things that come from the underworld. And, um, of course these, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and some of his famous stories have, uh, creatures that come from deep within the earth. And, um, you know, that's like a trope for, uh, for a lot of this kind of, uh, fantasy. Yeah. And Wagner, I think really likes that. I mean, it's in his brand Mac Warren novel. It's in a few of the stories that we read, you know, yeah. like, so I think and it seems to, seems to be something that he's really uh, fascinated with, you know, well, there's uh, you know, the the Howard Brand McMoran story, Worms of the Earth, you know, which is like uh another another yeah. sort of um you know, story, which is a it's a, a classic in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, and he has there's a few of Howard's horror stories also have some similar stuff with like the going into the earth and encountering the serpent people and all that stuff like that. This story, I think in a way, owes more to maybe Edgar Rice Burroughs or, you know, something like that than that. Cause, cause the things that we see are prehistoric, basically, creatures that uh, from the age of heroes, essentially, you know? Exactly. Like, um, they try to, like, open up the... Like, Cain decides not to... Um, not to, to go down into the road to hell, as he says, and he says, tries to maybe start working on 
getting himself out of the where the rock slide was, and then he finds out that Dwasser is okay. So Dwasser's trying to like open things up for him so he can get in. And then, you know, Swasser wants to get in and Kane wants to get out. So he's trying to, like, trying to, like, get everything away from the, from the rock. But that's when uh, another denizen of the uh, the deep comes out, which is a, uh, a gigantic albino saber-toothed tiger. Like, that's even bigger than the ancient saber-toothed tigers. <laughs> Of course, of course, of course. There's a giant saber-toothed tiger waiting for them in the caves. Um, you know, and it attacks Kane. Yeah, and uh, but Duasulier yeah. does battle with it, and um, you know, they have this epic fight between the saber-tooth and Duasulier, and um, he dispatches the saber-tooth, but he is in turn mortally wounded, though. And um, yeah. Yeah, and so. this is after he managed to get get in with like the I think didn't he get in with like putting the, the um his axe like to hold up the stuff and then he got in so he could see the the um the crown the, the saber tooth tiger yeah the crown I mean and the tiger attacks and also like. So, you know, part of the rock falls down and pins into the wall as well. So he's trying to hold off. I think I lost your call. Yep, you're back. Oh, are you there? Yep, I'm still here. I don't know what happened. No, nope, yeah, I was just one of the... Yeah. But, um... Yeah, so then yeah, you get this epic battle between Dwasir and the and the tiger where he kills it with his bare hands. But, yeah, but he's mortally wounded. But also he did get to look on the uh the crown of of his king, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh I think Cain brings it to him, puts him puts it on him and stuff as well. Yeah, and this is like a rare moment of Cain being kind of sentimental about this whole thing too, you know, because he could have just like left with the crown and you know the riches associated with it but out of like i guess respect for dwasselier you know and and his um romantic quest for finding this crown he leaves him with it and uh yeah this this story had like uh this kind of like sad like brooding quality to it you know yeah yeah i mean the ending's very kind of kind of melancholy because you got you know dwasselier like yeah, you know, he's finally achieved his quest, but he dies in, in pursuit of it. But then, you know, Kane's like, well, you know, you killed this, the last, like, probably, you know, like, this, like, saber dude that's even bigger, like, trying to kind of, like, I guess there's kind of a sadness about it because it's uh, definitely the the setting sun of, of you know, the, uh, the giants, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, you know, and they're those dying race. The saber tooth itself was from another time, you know, and uh, you know, in Cain, even though he's thousands of years old, in the uh, context of deep time, is a relative upstart in the world. So there we have this, uh, you know, metaphor of two suns setting. You know, one sun rising and one sun setting, like that's put out in the beginning, opening paragraphs of the story, and it's uh 
yeah, it's very poignant and uh, very well done, I thought. Yeah, I think it's got a very, like, strong melancholy to to it, which I think seems to be a, a thing with Kane stories. that just have this kind of dark melancholy to them, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of what sets sets this character. You know, like I said, you know, we, we have the iconic characters of Conan and Elric, you know, and, and the, the Tolkien characters. And Kane is just like left out of that conversation, man. And it's a real, I think so many people would appreciate this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that even though Kane is probably what Wagner's most famous for, it seems like that, that has kind of waned since this, this work's been out of print and, you know, maybe like the the height of Kane being popular is probably the what I would imagine is probably the eighties, right? Maybe the yeah. early nineties, like where like Elric's kind of lived on in a lot of ways, but but Kane, yeah, for some for whatever reason, Kane's kind of drifted off into obscurity, which I th- I think mostly is because it's been out of print. Yeah, I, I, mean, I would no. like for it, you know. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a new El- Elric book that came out last year. You know what I mean? So, you know, Morkoff yeah. is still active, and you know, Wagner is deceased at this point. You know, for a couple of decades, and uh, you know, yeah, and, and think, he's out of out of print. You know. Yeah, I think uh, if Wagner had is still alive, like you know, like how Morcock is, I think that his work would still be in print. And I also think that, you know, we probably would have gotten a lot more work from him. You know, over the past, like, you know, he died in the 90s, right? So it's been almost yeah. 30 years, right? Yeah. So it's like, I think that, I think too, like, it seems like Wagner didn't have, like, somebody, like, like you know how, like, when Lovecraft died and, and you had, like, Durleth and, you know, Wandry and all these people who kind of were, like, dedicated to to keeping his, his memory alive, you know? Yeah, and, and keeping his stuff in print, I don't think really. It's very obvious that Wagner's like estate didn't have that kind of uh, drive to keep his name out there. You know what I mean? Or whoever was in charge of of uh, of his of his work after his death. You know? Yeah, and the real irony of that too is that um, you know Wagner was like very much hands on with keeping Howard's work in print too. You know, with his his stuff that he was doing and his pastiche novels that he, he wrote. Yeah. And I mean, and getting all the, the, the Howard stuff that the original, pre, you know, versions of all the stories printed, that was like basically all because of Wagner, you know, why we have like those Del Rey editions, for example, you know what I mean? That's right. Like, like, um, yeah, I think that at this point, it's kind of like you need somebody, like, uh, doing the same thing for Wagner, you know? Like, but I think that if he had survived and been able to keep his stuff in print, I think his name would be a lot a lot bigger, you know? No, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a, but it's, you know, I think that um, it should be, like, much, much bigger, you know? Like, a story like this, I mean... Like, I really, like, I mean, I'm still, you know, I haven't read a lot of Kane stuff, as, uh, but this is one that, that I had listened to before, because there was a, there was a guy who did a reading for it on, on uh, YouTube, 
And he actually kind of, he had like a postscript on it where he, his interpretation of the story also was dealing with the age of giants in terms of pulp fiction, you know, like, you know, like that, that, you know, to a certain extent, there's maybe a little bit of a kind of metaphor in the story of like, uh, the age of giants, you know, before and, and, and that kind of passing out, which I thought was an interesting interpretation. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, except for now, there seems to be this, like, whole, like, revitalization of, like, weird fiction and cosmic horror and, you know, pulpy stuff seems to be, like, popular again, you know? In yeah, I think ways. it goes through, I think it goes through, through waves, because you remember back in, like, the, the 90s, there was, like, a bunch of revival of a lot of interest in the kind of pulp stuff where you even like where we had like the shadow and like the phantom movies and you know what I mean? That's like, true, yeah. I, the funny thing though, is those things didn't do very good, but, but I think that was probably the generation who grew up on that stuff, trying to make movies out of it. But, but I do think that there's kind of a, a ebb and flow, but I do think that weird fiction is probably, um, probably like what the most popular it's been as long as I can remember, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, especially with like, you know, I mean, I know, you know, the um, Color Out of Space came out a couple of years ago and, um, you know, Richard Stanley had some problems, you know, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, being canceled or some hearsay stuff that was going on with him. And uh, so it doesn't look like he's going to be doing any more, at least in the foreseeable future with that, you know, Lovecraft stuff. And he's like one of the perfect guys to make that sort of those kinds of movies. But there seems that, you know, people are talking about Lovecraft again. You know, people are talking about, you know, like heroic fantasy and, you know, Game of Thrones was like big, you know, like there was like a one of the most successful shows on TV. And um, and I just think in general, like this type of stuff is like in people's consciousness more than it has been in a long time. So, you know, hopefully someone decides to look look at the. uh Wagner's estate and get this stuff back in print. I mean, it's on Kindle, man. So let's have some hard copies of this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I mean, I always talk about how, you know, 15 years ago, you couldn't find like the King in yellow or any of that kind of stuff. And nowadays you can get a countless different editions of the King in yellow. Yep. No, but I mean, literally, I remember trying to find the King in yellow back in, you know, mid 2000s and it being literally impossible even from a library you know like i couldn't find a copy of it anywhere so it's like things have definitely changed with all that i mean you can find all this stuff so much easier than it was and i think that helps add to the to the to the ability for people to get into it and i think yeah i mean like lovecraft has like risen you know even with people trying to cancel him or whatever doesn't seem to stop him like growing in popularity you know what i mean yeah now people seem to you know put that in perspective you know but uh but yeah the takeaway is uh go out and read all these stories and uh you know hopefully yeah read this story yeah hopefully that'll make a difference you know maybe we should start a campaign you know trying to get the (laughs) night winds republished you know because i mean the collection's already there there's a night winds collection you know that's like It'd be great to have a new a new volume of that out there, you know, with like awesome like artwork and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like a bet. Yeah, it would be cool to have somebody like uh, 
Sharp Terra do something out with like some awesome artwork and and um yeah and I I'm looking forward to getting more into Kane like off to a great start like I really loved like the the particularly their 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 philosophic conversation the story I thought was great you know like yeah. so many great lines in it and the particularly like the kind of real pessimistic stuff like about. <laughs> Well, Mankind's I mean, that, universe. I love that stuff. <laughs> you know, as much as much as I like the action, my my the biggest thing I loved about these stories is you know because I I reread all this stuff last year, like when I discovered them on Kindle, I was like, oh, I could just read them on my tablet now. And I read you know all the all the stories again last year, like around this time, like around Christmas time last year, I started revisiting all this, and it's it's the the action's fun, you know, the swords the sword play is good, but it's like even even in undertow the the meditation on loneliness you know and and those are the things that i really appreciate about the kane character is the fact that he's immortal and his perspective on these philosophies and loneliness and the eternity and you know all that kind of stuff it's like really really interesting yeah that's my favorite part of the story is like Wagner does do action good. I don't think he does it as good as Howard, but wow, Howard's the best at that. Yeah, yeah. Like Howard's the best action writer, story writer. You know, as far as I think that I've ever read. I mean, the way that his prose really pr- propels the whole story. But Wagner does a really good job of of action as well. But you know, he does he really excels at the kind of uh, philosophic side of things. But he does manage to do, you know, what Howard did, which is, you know, if you read a story like Queen of the Black Coast, you know, you get these like kind of philosophic digressions that from Conan and stuff and mixed in with the action. I definitely think that Wagner does that good, but I also think that his stories are maybe a little bit more on the philosophic side, which I'm totally cool with. I really like that. I think his kind of philosophy is interesting and, and you kind of, you definitely see a, a strong pessimism that, wouldn't be too far off from Lagati in a lot of ways, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So there you have it guys. That's uh two sun setting. It's uh, we're off to a strong start in this next phase of darkness weaves. And uh, so everyone get out there and start reading these stories, man, and discover the awesome world of uh, Carl Edward Wagner. And thanks Carl for uh, joining me on this. Oh yeah, man. I'm really enjoying uh, getting into the cane stuff. Some to we're off to a good start (laughs) all right guys we'll talk to you soon take care bye i'll see you carl bye bye